You're listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. My name is Brady. I'm joined again in studio by Billy Galenko. Billy, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Brady. Very well. How are you? How are everything on the East Coast? Are you actually having a fall leaves turn out there? Yeah, it is. Our neighborhood is extremely wooded. Like the road kind of winds through the trees the whole way. And it's really nice driving through, especially in the morning when the sun's coming up and stuff like that. That's really nice. We have a magnolia tree right outside um, the house that hasn't turned yet. But I like those leaves when they fall because they're they're really thick and stiff and big. You can <laughs> almost use them like Dixie dinner plates. That's cool. We actually have the I think it's the 14th largest American elm tree in the state of Maryland in our front yard. Um, oh, wow. It's really cool. Yeah, it's like 100 and something like 113 feet and 90 feet uh, wide, like from branch to branch across. So Do you each have of any its idea how old it is. I believe it's from the mid to late 1800s because our neighborhood, like the front part of our neighborhood, was built up in the 1890s so i think it's probably somewhere between 1840 and 1890 yeah nice nice well we have to travel to go see leaves but i think we'll do that this weekend (laughs) nice we just have a a few updates on the platform before we get into today's episode not really updates just kind of status updates i guess on our open collections our two bordeaux offerings that we have available on the platform right now are bordeaux millennium collection and our bordeaux on for more 2021 collection. That's our Bordeaux Futures. We have about 60% of the Bordeaux Millennium sold through. So we still have around 700 shares left of that collection. And then we have 72% of our Bordeaux Futures sold through. We have just about 1,300 shares left of that offering. So plenty of opportunity to either start or continue to diversify your portfolio into blue chip Bordeaux, both back vintage, you know, Bordeaux from 2000, and also current release unbottled stuff. Uh, from 2021 vintage from Bordeaux. So two really good value propositions that we, as we've talked about in the past and looking forward in the coming weeks to new offerings coming to the Vint platform. So I think Billy and Adam put together a really cool batch of collections that will take us hopefully through the middle to end of December. Yeah, we're really excited about what we have upcoming, both wine and whiskey from across regions and some some new regions. Yeah. Up. And I think Patrick and the team have been updating us that there might be a few platform updates that some people may start seeing. We're going to be testing different payment options. I think Plaid will become an option that some of you might see down the line here. So we're trying to, again, streamline the the investment process. Again, that's going to be on a testing basis. So not everybody will, will see these things, but stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. And then as we move into the new year, I'm sure we'll talk more about this towards the end of the fourth quarter and into quarter one. But 2023, I think, will be a really big year for our platform in terms of new features and and new ways that folks will be able to interact with their portfolio and with us. So yeah, stay tuned for that as well. We'll definitely provide more updates as we go along. Yeah. No, it'll it'll for sure be an exciting year. The question is what all what all everybody get to see. Who knows? Our roadmap has so much stuff on it that we can't only do so much with our smaller team, but we're doing it as best true. we can. Outside of our platform, Billy, we talked a little bit about your upcoming reset exam. That's this week, isn't it? 
Yeah, by the time this episode comes out, I'll be I'll be sitting down, examining away. That's actually how we're going to go see leaves this weekend. The best way to see leaves in California is to go to where the vineyards are and the pinot changes to yellow and then eventually kind of reddish in the fall cool. in a good way. Yeah, it's really pretty. I'm hoping there there's still leaves up there. It should be. It's getting down to like the 40s, though, at night up in Sonoma and Napa now. So it's, oh, wow. it gets cold yeah. pretty quick. But yeah, no, so I have... I have the the diploma. I think we've gone over it a little bit, but just a, a little bit more more details, and I'll share a little bit about how I've studied. But tomorrow, it's a the two part theory exam. It's just kind of the written stuff, questions about anywhere in the world. This is like long form essay writing. So it, the first part is two hours. The second part is an hour and twenty minutes. So it's three and a half plus hours of, or nearly three and a half hours of writing. And then day two is two sets of tasting exams, one hour and a half in the morning and then one hour and a half in the afternoon. And that's 12 blind wines. The first one is you're identifying the varietal as well as analyzing the wines. Second one is you're identifying the country as well as analyzing the wines. Third one is region and wines. And then the last one is grab bag. So it could literally be any dry or sweet wine that's still and not fortified in the world. Wow. So how do you, how do you plan? I mean, I know a little bit of how you've planned and, and tried to study for that in terms of purchasing tasting kits and, and bottles and other kinds of things that are representative of what you might see on the exam. But what's the mindset going into tasting 12 wines blind? Yeah, it's been really interesting. I did purchase the tasting kits from the, the organization that I'm working with. Unfortunately, I never got to taste any of those in time when they're still fresh. So some of these tasting kits, basically people will take bottles, pour them into little bottles and put little screw caps on them. And by the time I ever got to taste these, like it wasn't the fault of the organization. It was just my delay in tasting them that they were all kind of the the fresher fruits or the, the fresher notes were blown off for the most part. So I would get good structural tasting, but it wasn't really helpful otherwise. Although I did have mm. these little ampules that were Corvin. They were, I think they, they Corvin it and then they put a sticker on the top. And I've had those for months and I just tried them last weekend and they were perfect and those were chardonnay and high-end chard like high-end burgundies actually when i was flabbergasted by the you know how how well they were stayed so so with the with the screw cap like little bottles what are they like 150 milliliter they're just like one yeah. or they're less than that kind of thing they don't put there's no they don't gas it at all it's just dumped in there and screwed on it, it depending on the organ some gas but it's it's hard to really i mean you fill it all the way up as much as you can so that's sure. kind of that's the way they kind of eliminate the oxygen. But there's not really a way unless you have like these ampules that are more expensive to really like kind of put gas in while the, the closure's on top already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but yeah, so otherwise I've I've been Vince been um very supportive in in studies. So I've been able to just buy a range of bottles and you're really just tasting for, you know, going down the their kind of form of the grid. It's very different than the quartermaster sommelier grid. So you're you're looking at the color. You know, it ranges anywhere from like light to deep. I guess those are the kind of the, the ranges. So a lot, most wines are are ruby and lemon, if depending on if it's red or white. And then you go through the aromas. You have to analyze uh, the intensity of the aroma as well as outline, you know, all of the, the scents you're kind of smelling. And each of these sections has different weights of points. And then when it comes to the palate, you have to analyze, in my head, I say satab and then something else, but it's sweetness, alcohol, tannin acid body and then finish and intensity so you have to do all of that for all of them as well as flavor notes and then you take all of that to go to the back and say what you think the quality of the wine is this is what 
I think Lisa was talking about is the, the core part of the W set and Master of Wine kind of track rather than compared to the Quartermaster Sommeliers is the goal isn't necessarily to identify the exact vineyard or the exact producer. It's to identify how what the quality of this wine is and does it have the ability to age? And then taking all of that into account, you then take that step back and try to identify what you think the the varietal of the country or the region is. Yeah, obviously like blind tasting can have a like party trick kind of feel to it like oh like you know this feels like something that doesn't really have much use but is that does the thing that makes you most excited about learning the process have to do with being able to identify quality or are you kind of interested and intrigued by being able to call region and producer and those kinds of things i i much prefer quality because you know me in general is that i love to taste like everything and and all the most obscure varietals so to me if i can taste the wine and be like wow i could tell there's a really like a lot of all the elements that go into making a good quality, whether it be the perfect balance, integrated tannin, some maybe oak treatment, or is it amphora treatment? Like when you can kind of tell how a wine was made, regardless if you're familiar with it, I think that's important because you're not going to be familiar with most wines that you drink ever until you become, you know, you work in the industry like we do. So that's really interesting to me. But also the format theory is kind of my, my passion. I love the history and the geography behind wine. So the fact that I get these flights of three and I can kind of be like, okay, I'm getting these notes from each of these and then kind of Sherlock Holmesing it all together is actually kind of fun. Like I'm actually looking forward to that. And then the grab bag section will be the one that I'm like, you know, it'll be a little less fun. It'll be more stressful trying to figure out exactly which one's which, but it'll be fun. Yeah. I forget if I told you about the the three elevation horizontal tasting that I did when we were in Greece, a Muscat. It was like, there were three different wines. There was one at, 300 feet of elevation, one at 2000 feet of elevation, one at like 4,300 feet. And they were all low intervention, kind of funky, but all like very different, obviously, but it was the exact same blend, exact same, you know, great, just different elevations was the only difference. That was really cool tasting to do. I think something like that, like is really to understand how a wine was made whether or not it was, you know, in this region or that region, but what what's the likely climate, what's the likely elevation, what were the likely things that were done and done or not done in the winery during the process. I think those are, you know, really interesting and, and universal things to be able to identify, right? Yeah. And for a varietal like like muscat, regardless of which variation of muscat it was, that's one that ripens very quickly and really can become ripe and grapey. So elevation would have a very distinct impact on I'm sure the top one was much more acidic and fresh and the bottom one was probably a little sure, more like yep. full throttled and fruity which that's a perfect grape to kind of kind of look at that stuff with yeah yeah it was cool it's a lot of fun well well good good luck with the exam man that writing part you have to actually write it mm-hmm. like with a pencil or pen yeah mm-hmm. i don't know if my my hand would get through that i remember the last time i did something like that my hand cramped up and i was it was like 30 minutes in i said i didn't realize how much i've been typing instead <laughs> of writing the last 15 years yeah, no, that W said that makes you write all the way through. So this time I've been prepping for like a month and a half of literally like almost rewriting the book. But one, just so I got used to writing for a long period of time again. And sure. Yeah. My handwriting also sucks. So I have to get polished on that. And the other part is how to spell all these words. Like you don't actually think about like you want to make sure they understand at least what region you're kind of trying to talk about. Like maybe not accent marks, but yeah. like yeah. some of these, especially when you get to like Greece is like, how the hell am I supposed to spell this? Or South Africa, those words are extremely hard to spell. Yeah. I think I got it. But yeah, we'll do that. And then we're going to um, uh, Robert Mondavi to go taste 
some uh, Tokalon wines on a Saturday. Oh, your, N- your NFT wine. Right? Yeah, following through in that NFT. I think it's also time to redeem that. So we'll see. Turns out not that many people are interested in a ceramic magnum of wine they've never tasted before. So we'll see. I've, I've been trying to shop it around ahead of picking it up. So yeah, that's something to consider. I think it was it was really cool at the peak of the market, right? When it was like, oh, what was it? Like one ETH, eighteen hundred dollars. Well, they're, they're, no, it was half half ETH, eighteen hundred dollars. I guess at the peak of the market. Well, they that still was, had they had one recently that was half ETH for six hundred for one of the bottles, and I almost got a third yeah. one, but I was like, oh, geez, but what are you going to do with two, much less three? So I held. You got to be, you gotta be careful. I found myself. It was like. 11.45 last night, I was laying in bed almost, that, that seems like always the time where I almost buy all my wines that are over like two or $300 a bottle, I'm like scrolling I'm like, just one would be fine And by the time I know it, that, that month I've done that like five different evenings <laughs> you gotta be careful after like 10 o'clock at night. But yeah, but we'll, we'll see, I mean this still has that I think it's pronounced Bernard B-E-R-N-A-U-D, you know, ceramic Magnus, so mm-hmm. I think once these start getting out into the, the market a little bit more, they're just being released now. There will be a little bit more interest. I'm hoping some critic, I hope, you know, I don't think they all sold out. So I'm hoping they give one to a critic to at least get some sort of rating, which would be helpful. Maybe I was going to offer Lisa our, my second one the other day, be like, just taste this, say it's good, and then I'll sell the other one. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. But yeah, and it's going to be a good weekend, and I'll, I'll be back next week. Nice. Yeah, very good. I won't. I won't ask you. I'll wait for you to tell me how how well you think you did, in case yeah. in case it's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let me let me let you know. That's the one beauty of having to wait so long. So you these handwritten letters or you know tests are literally mailed to London and then hand reviewed, which is ridiculous in this day and age. But it's so British. But so yeah. By the time I get my results, you guys will have forgotten I had taken this, and hopefully right. if I, I failed. <laughs> it was just gonna. We're not gonna mention it again, and then I'll take it again, and then I'll let you guys know when I pass eventually. <laughs> yeah, I when I did my level two, I had forgotten, not forgotten that I'd taken it, but forgotten about, oh, I haven't gotten my results back. And then just one day it just showed up in the mail. I was like, oh, okay. I'll pro- I might I might do I, I said I was gonna do three this winter, but I don't think so. I'll probably wait until spring or something. Yeah, we'll but. see. What one last note that I think is interesting for possibly for our listeners is I have a buddy who makes wine in Australia and he's in the level two of his MW program which I didn't know. So that's cool. We're going to have to talk about that. He's looking at possibly doing his MW research paper on wine investing. And he came across Vint as, you know, but it's just interesting as somebody doing research in Australia doesn't know anything about wine investing in the world. Vint comes up pretty early on in his research. So we're starting to get some traction out there. I'll I'll chat with him next week, but that was cool to hear. Nice. Yeah, that is cool. I like that. You want to transition to our interview today? We have Ken Freeman joining us, which I think is really unique among folks that we've interviewed in terms of his background and and his spheres of influence right now. Yeah, I think, I mean, he has, he's that perfect confluence of wine and business. He's worked in private equity, worked in wealth management, and now he owns a winery with his wife, but he's also still, still working in wealth management at BNY Mellon, which I didn't know was run by Alexander Hamilton as well back in the day. So really fascinating guy, really savvy, both financially and, and, from what I can hear, and when I we got to meet him last year, we invited the Vint team up, and we got to do a little tasting in their in their cave or their cellar. He has a great palate as well. So yeah, here enjoy your the conversation with Ken Freeman. Uh, 
All right. So we have Ken Freeman with us. Thank you so much for joining today, Ken. Billy, glad to be here. Yeah, I've, I will have mentioned in our, our intro here, but Ken was gracious enough to have us, the Vint team, when we were only four, over to the winery last year, last year in August. So it was it was really nice to get to check out the cellar and be able to taste all their beautiful Pinot Noirs. So it's great to have you on the podcast after over well, a year. Great, great to reconnect with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So uh, let's dive into a little bit about your background because you have an interesting balance background here that really kind of corresponds well with Vince. It's you are very business driven and kind of wealth management side, but then you also are very deep, obviously, in the wine space that you run with your your wife. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do? Absolutely. Well, first of all, lesson number one in the wine business, don't quit your day job. So uh, <laughs> we were uh, fortunate to start our winery ooh, 21 years ago. Akiko, my wife, is from Tokyo. We met when she was an exchange student uh, in New York. We spent five years as expats in Asia helping to set up Discovery Channel across the region and came back to San Francisco in 1997 and was introduced to wines from the Sonoma Coast Russian River. And it just kind of the, the fruit profile really just attracted us. Having a big media background, I was able to join CNET kind of one of the early employees. And then we were able to get our small little winery up here in West Sonoma. We drove around for two years and we bought a little rundown winery. And then it's been a 20-year work in progress. Awesome. Yeah. And you you guys have a special little spot there too, because it's not little, but a special spot because it's a little, it's a little cooler than some of the rest of the Russian River as well, isn't it? It is. We're located about 10 miles from the Pacific at 400 feet. So we're right in the border of now the West Sonoma Coast, and I can chat about that, the newest AVA, and the Green Valley. So uh, yeah, we get a lot of coastal influence where we're located. Yeah, I remember the wines having awesome balance and that, that great acid that sometimes gets a little overblown with fruit and some of the other parts of the, the AVA. So cool. Well, Brady, do you want to you start out with a lot of these business-driven questions, since that's more your realm? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Ken, tell us tell us about what your work that you do with BNY Mellon and kind of, you know, we have like Billy said, you have the wine side in the vineyards and kind of producing, but also working alongside members of the wine community with just, you know, financing yeah, absolutely. other kinds um, of things. You know, I mentioned my time in the internet business and I was able to move into raising private equity funds. So I was a banker with City and UBS and a couple other groups covering LPs, limited partners in Asia and, and the Western US. And then I made the move into wealth management, joined BNY Mellon two years ago, and it's been a great move. So, uh, you know, I, I work now with ultra wealthy families. Several of them are leading wine families. Obviously, there's been a lot of news about transition in the wine business and people selling properties, and and we help them with the planning ahead of the transaction and then manage their their wealth for hopefully for generations to come. What what are what are some of the big challenges that folks you know maybe ultra wealthy multi generational owners of these estates, especially in the region you're working in? What are some of the the challenges that uh, they might face in terms of estate planning and just like generational? Sure. Planning well, I think you know the, the biggest issue is just you hit on the head multi generational, and you know the challenge is that you know a lot of these are generation three, and there's a lot of siblings now who are involved uh, somewhat, but there's generally one or two that are involved in the business and the others are like, you know, where's my, where's my mm -hmm. piece? You're having so much fun running this <laughs> wine business, you know, where, where's my money? So un unfortunately, that's one of the reasons why, you know, you've heard about a bunch of high profile sales in the past year or two. And, you know, frankly, we know 
many of them and most you know don't want to sell in terms of the people running the business but it's other mm-hmm. siblings that are kind of pushing for that sale but it's really been the you know the, the dramatic increase in the asset value of these businesses out here both land and brand and then you add that to some of the challenges that the french are having with weather and supply and so uh yeah they have a perfect storm of people are being offered a lot of money for these assets they got into it for the love of the business and then they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars but these, I guess these are mainly corporate ac- acquisitions, right? I think it's uh, twofold or maybe even threefold. So it's clearly the strategics. So you saw that the past 10, 15 years with the Constellations and Diageos, you know, LVMH, I guess you could call it a corporate, but really a strategic, you know, Louis Vuitton and all those mm-hmm. great brands buying Phelps. But you also have a lot of high, ultra high net worth buyers, you know, folks who bought Smoke, for example, you know, a number of those brands. So you're seeing international buyers, you're seeing strategic US buyers, and then you're seeing, you know, wealthy buyers from around the world. I mean, who doesn't want to own a winery? Right. Yeah. I mean, is that, I think every time, especially outside of Napa Valley, when you hear about corporate acquisitions, there can be some kind of murmuring and mumbling around like in that region and among the fans of those wines, whether or not it's good for the region and good for the producer. It, would you say it just depends on the situation, whether or not these corporate yeah, absolutely. acquisitions? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I share that good. initial thoughts like, oh, uh, you know, this what made this winery special? It's no longer there. But, you know, many of these larger acquirers, you know, are good at keeping the team in place. Obviously, they spend a lot of money for the brand. And so they're trying to they're trying to keep continuity. And if you kind of take a look and you could list, you know, 10 of these and you know, frankly, I think the quality of wine is still the same. You know, the big difference is, you know, personally, we like supporting small family businesses. And we just know what goes into making our kind of 6,000 cases of wine. And if you kind of mm-hmm. scale that up, you know, just tan touch and kind of more formulaic. But these these folks have done a good job of preserving these these brands. Do, do you find that I assume that most people who are involved at the winery level are negotiating a way to stay on on like the as part of the business after an acquisition but i'm well, sure some don't too, I, I won't right? say the name of a very large acquisition but i was with the winemaker just last night we did a west sonoma coast vintner sponsor thank you party and um he, they didn't get a new agreement yet so he's kind of up in the air which is kind of surprising mm-hmm. that he was kind of had some you know compensation with his old owner and he's waiting for the new so sometimes these things, you know, there's a bit of a time lag. Obviously, there's a, a lot of moving pieces when you do an M&A transaction. But I was quite, I was kind of surprised that they hadn't locked down the team yet with a new, uh, you know, a new compensation package. Yeah, on, on that, sorry, Ray, I was just one note on no, that. Is, uh, when we were, we did a little tour of some Oregon wineries and met with some some producers and owners up there in spring. And one, one was interesting is one of the properties, I, w- I won't mention it either, specifically was acquired by Constellation. And the winemaker was very much involved with the, the negotiations. And I, I think it's because he has a little bit more of an ownership stake. But that was interesting as he was touting how not only did the team stay, but their their benefits and and some of the stuff that they also got was were actually enhanced just because of the additional capital that they were able to have on hand. So it's interesting how that can kind of vary based on the deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and folks that aren't staying on, you know, once an acquisition happens and and you know producers or winemakers decide to move on from wine, maybe completely. What are some other areas of business that folks tend to gravitate towards or do not advise? Well, I think, you know, the the labor market is so hot here. Mm -hmm. Everybody's looking for, you know, clearly great winemaking talent. 
you know, hospitality, marketing talent. So I, I think these folks, especially the ones that are being acquired, these are, you know, leading brands, people who, you know, deep backgrounds, great experience. So clearly there's a lot of opportunity just with existing players. And then, you know, some want to be entrepreneurs and go out and create the next great, great label or brand. And we all know the challenges that are involved with that. So are you, so when you work with these families on their wealth management, is it mainly shepherding these deals through fruition and kind of distributing the funds? Or are you also advising them on other potential investments to make in other categories to kind of just- Yeah, really what, you know, BNY Mellon, just a quick sidebar, you know, it's Alexander Hamilton's bank. We're the oldest bank in the US, the first stock. We custodian $45 trillion, all the US government money. We're the sole trustee, all the BlackRock money. And so we're not the flashy, you know, investment banking brokerage house model. So we really specialize in long-term planning and diversification. And so what we'll do is, you know, a a lot of it's after tax. So we can come in and along with their tax folks, we have internal tax and trust experts to structure the transaction to be more tax efficient, um, um, you know, for the folks who are being acquired. And then it's really taking those assets and, you know, coming up with a plan, a long-term plan for diversification. And that could be in alternatives. It could be in equities. It could be in, in bonds, et cetera. Awesome. Yeah, Brady, you want to? Brady's kind of the yes. leader in diversification and in, in, in the bit. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess. Well, I myself, I probably aren't very diversified, but we do try and help our our investors to do that. Maybe wine investing is on the horizon for some of these folks. Yeah, I think that it's clearly in the alternative bucket of things. And having been a placement agent and raised uh, mm-hmm. infrastructure funds, and real estate funds, and buyout funds, and venture capital funds, I think you know wine, if done right, is an investable asset similar to art. And if you kind of look at the appreciation, I'm a collector. And frankly, you know, switching back to Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, you know, we're seeing huge demand for our wines, capital H, internationally. And that's coming from the Nordic countries, it's coming from Europe, it's coming from Asia as a replacement to Burgundy. And again, we're not ideally, you know, similar to, you know, we got some similarities, but it's not the same, but the cost of Burgundy has just got so astronomical. And I'm sure as your clients and, and what your firm that, you know, normal people just can't afford it. And so, you know, it's been a boon for us. So uh, yeah, without a doubt, I think it is, it is an investable asset class. What are, sorry, I was going to happen and say, what are some other alternatives that you guys typically kind of go down the route. I know art's very common for like a physical asset, but is there are there other categories that you're really hot on right now? Well, as I think we're, you know, we're the oldest bank, as I mentioned, we're also the highest rated bank. So we're very risk adverse as a mm-hmm. firm. So extremely conservative. Um, so I wouldn't be the right person to ask, but we kind of stay in our our kind of narrow lanes, but uh, we are increasing our allocation to alternatives and, you know, funds of all types are part of that mix. Well, yeah, well, I, I mainly ask because it's interesting to like, the, depending on the type of um, fund or person we're talking to, like alternative can mean everything from like as crazy and volatile as crypto to something is like, you know, we're going just from equities and bonds and kind of just expanding a little bit more out in the traditional instruments. So that's kind of why I was asking, because it's interesting to see what a company with a lower risk profile considers alternatives, really. Mm-hmm. Seen, we've seen debt, litigation, financing definitely coming coming online, even with retail investors as as an alternative option as well. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you can mention there's a whole bunch of sub strategies out there that are all really, that are all really interesting. What's your, as a producer, when you think about the wine investment space, you know, in France, for instance, 
a lot of skepticism around involvement with investment firms, you know, with the producers. What's your perspective as, you know, your brand grows and other brands around you grow? How would you handle um, involvement with investment firms as a Yeah, producer? I think uh, the big caveat is if done right. And uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. there were some bad characters historically for whatever reason. So there's a little bit of a uh, a taint. Sorry to use that analogy. And then you have the storage, you know, provenance issue out there. But I think if you're dealing with a you know quality first rate organization like Vint, it's your job to eliminate that type of risk. And if that's eliminated and you're you're selecting collectible you know wines that are you know clearly appreciating. I mean, look at the track record over the sure. past 10, 30, 50 years. There's clearly scarcity and there's clearly global growing interest. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. What are you what are you collecting personally? You said that maybe you're are you doing some collecting? Oh, absolutely. I've been, you know, collecting. We're fortunate. You know, Billy came out and saw our seller. You know, who doesn't love, you know, white red burgundy? We go on a yearly trip up to Piedmonte. So uh, Barolo and Barbaresco are some of our favorites. We love Champagne, Northern Rhone, uh, you name it, but wines from around the world. And of course, our fellow winemakers out here in the West Sonoma Coast, the Green Valley, the Russian River, you know, who doesn't love a Big bottle of Napa Cab when you're having a, a big piece of meat. I'm going to Piemonte for the first time in a few couple of weeks, actually. So I'll have to get your favorite producers there. Off Absolutely. The and Kevin also is a Piedmonte expert. So we love it. I didn't know that. I guess I thought he only went once. Cool. Well, thanks. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely dive into that. So going back to getting the winery up and off the ground, what, what kind of does it take to really start financing and getting a winery to be kind of productive in terms of like generating revenue and eventually a profit? We were very fortunate. We bought a, a winery on four acres. It had a 2000 case permit in, in 2001 and had a rundown house on the hill. And the first call we got was from Dan and Michael Costa Brown. Mm. And they said they tried to buy it. They, you know, they, they couldn't, could they be our tenant? So we made 600 cases of wine our first year in 02. They made 1400 cases of wine. I'm such a good business investor that instead of owning half a Costa Brown, I charged them rent. I said, I don't know if these guys are going to make it. And uh, true story. Oh, and man. then we had the house rented out on the hill. So we were cash flow positive day one in the wine business, which is, I think, impossible. Um, <laughs> probably never going to happen again. Um, we were then able to increase the permit. So we did some studies for septic and water and traffic, and we increased the permit to 6,000 cases. And as part of that, the value of the winery just kind of you know quadrupled. And so then we built a 6,000-foot cave. We locked in financing at the time with no floor. And so we were paying kind of 1% interest for the first, you know, wow. eight years of existence. The bank doesn't do that anymore. So we were just, you know, very fortunate in terms of being able to, you know, get in at an entry level. We also, I forgot to mention, we bought our winery for $870,000. Oh, wow. So <laughs> it was mispriced. It was overgrown. People just didn't understand the value of it. So I think that, you know, we were informed novices. I think number one, we knew enough about the wine business was the problem that, people have is they spend too much money and that's across any business and they grow too, they try to grow too fast and they're unfocused. So we, this, we were very focused early on. I think having a Japanese wife help with that. I sometimes come up with ideas. She's like, stay right in the lane. So yeah, just do one or two things really well. I think understanding your market, you can't be everything to everybody. You know, like tell a story, everybody wants to have their wines in New York, but it's so competitive in New York, you know, pick, pick some other areas and really be very, you know, very dominant there. And then just watch how much money you spend. An example, 
for our branding, coming up with our logo and brand, we went out to three or four agencies and we said we're a little startup company. We don't have a lot of money. And we got these proposals back for, at the time, $30,000, $50,000. And I posted the job on the Academy of Arts website. I got 50 resumes, including a good friend of ours now who had worked in Glenn Fittich and Altoids. He goes, I want to I want to know, learn about wine. I'll do your wine stuff. Trade me wine for it. And mm. so we kind of use that mentality. He's still doing creative work for us today to just drive costs out of the system. Anybody can go spend a lot of money. So yeah, those are just a few tips. Yeah. No. All right. Noted. Find a Sonoma winery for $870,000 with four <laughs> acres planted. Got it. <laughs> and also, hey, don't forget to have Sideways come out right when we're launching our first wine. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> so and, oh, made our first wine in 02, launched in 04, right when Sideways. And as you know, that took up Pinot Noir consumption, what, two to 300% the category. I was reading a bit, and you guys explained to us a little bit last year when we visited why your your wife kind of really has a passion for Pinot Noir and kind of why you guys were looking for that. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. So Akiko, I mentioned, grew up in Tokyo. Um, her family goes back 23 generations, which is kind of amazing. And the Shinto Temple sends the family a bill each year for to pray for their previous family members. So uh, my in-laws are like, we don't know these people. What are we doing? But they do pay the bill. So my wife's grandfather studied at Oxford in the 30s, and he was a renowned academic, brought back wine drinking to Japan. And he loved Claret, Bur Bur or rather Bordeaux. And uh, my father-in-law loved Burgundy. So uh, my wife grew up drinking Burgundy with her dad. So early appreciation of wine, so very unusual. And uh, when we met, you know, food and wine has just been a central part of our relationship, and we drive hours to find the right restaurants. And that's one of the reasons why we saw a lot of our wine in Japan. This is my wife. There's a common common thread, Billy, for people we talk to who are deep in the wine world, having grown up drinking Burgundy. We hear those words all the time. <laughs> I wish I had grown up drinking Burgundy, but that was not the case. Another interesting one is, you know, my mom was a real foodie, no longer with us, but a lot of my friends that love food and wine, my mom would take me to the first farmer's market, Chinatown, and really kind of more on the exploratory. My dad was more kind of a meat and potatoes guy down the middle. I was also fortunate that I grew up down the street from Zaki's. Mm. So uh, we'd have Zaki's in our back. We weren't drinking Grand Cru, but you know, we were drinking Pouli Fousse or just international wines, which uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago was not that common. Yeah, that was where I had to come by. Have you ever had any Pinot Noir from Hokkaido and like Northern Japan more? Yeah, we have. As you, you might imagine, we have kind of every Japanese winemaker coming by the winery. We're going to Hokkaido in February. Our West Sonoma Coast Vintner Group is doing a, we're the, the, the wine region of the year for the Wine Institute in Japan and Korea. So uh, there's now almost 40 members of our organization, but we're going to head to Hokkaido, get a little skiing in first. Yeah, it's a really interesting area and, you know, kind of similar to kind of Tasmania out on the extreme. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I randomly follow a winemaker on Facebook. I don't even know. I don't really go on Facebook, but there's this lady who posts and her pictures are always like beautiful. And I'm like, I want to try some Hokkaido Pinot Noir. So that's really cool. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about the West Sonoma Coast Vintners, like what the kind of group is? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is uh, about 11 years ago, uh, six wineries got together. It was Literai, Freeman, Pei, Joseph Phelps, and Redcar, and Fela. And we were just getting a lot of confusion from the market about Sonoma Coast, where people were uh, producing wine at these giant vineyards in the town of Sonoma that had no elevation 40 miles from the Pacific. And we all had state vineyards that were 1,000, 2,000 feet, two or three miles from the ocean. There's just a lot of confusion with consumers. 
And so we we started studying the area, like what's the difference between our high elevation, you know, close to the ocean and some of these other sites. We got a consultant. And then nine years ago, we submitted a application to TTB. And after eight years, we were approved. And fast forward, we have almost 40 members today. And I think we bottled our first West Sonoma Coast wine. So starting in 2001, our Yuki estate will have West Sonoma Coast. So when you see West Sonoma Coast on the label, you'll know it's above a thousand feet, a couple miles from the ocean and generally a really small handcrafted producer. That's awesome. Yeah. That, that also, for me, that's like something that's very important because number one, the Russian river AVA itself has gotten so broad. I know there's green Valley and some other like Chalk Hill or some subsets, but that really helps you kind of narrow down what your wine may be like because you could run anything. Absolutely. Before. I think it's such an evolution that, you know, France, obviously with Burgundy and, and all the sub-districts, you know, people want it. We're, we've been working with Antonio Galloni and, and Venice. There's mapping coming out on our region. So it's kind of the phase, in the next phase of people, of consumers, informed consumers really wanting to know, you know, where, where their wine's coming from, how it's grown, where it's grown. Is is that the big business benefit, just more informed consumers or have the downstream effects of, you know, now having this new AVA that you can attach the name to? Absolutely. I think it's for the sommelier community, for the collector community, mm-hmm. and just for everybody. It's just the Snow Coast was just a huge area. It's basically anything that was outside Russian River or Dry Creek or Caneros. And there was really kind of no sense of place for it. So as we kind of further study and defined our areas, that our area is definitely a little distinctive. Petaluma Gap spun off on the southern part, and that's you know a great area, very different too. Yeah, it's just an evolution, and I think it's just great for the for the for the wine consumer. Do you guys make any sparkling? I can't remember if you. Ever we do know. actually. So we made a 20th anniversary sparkling, and a little secret that the top Napa producers, their best lots come from high elevation out on the coast. So uh, we do a rosé, do a blanc de blanc and a blanc de noir. Oh, and nice! People absolutely, you know, go crazy for it. That's awesome. I'm gonna have to get my hands on one of those. Yes, um, love to love to have you try it. Awesome. Well, I think those. Are actually most of my my main questions. I say, I guess I would say my last one is something I kind of ask a lot of producers these days: is how do you feel the effects of of climate change as a whole and the sustainability efforts? I guess this is two part. What sustainability efforts are you guys kind of employing? And then being a cooler area, are you guys a little more insulated from some of the effects that you might? Yeah, no, great, great question. So you know, clearly it's getting a little warmer when you talk to old timers out here. We're not getting as much fog. But at the same point, as it gets hotter inland, it sucks in cooler air. Um, so we are, you know, pretty, pretty, or very fortunate where we are located wise. So we feel pretty good about that. Obviously, we've had a bunch of fires and smoke, and you know, generally we've been unaffected because we pick really early, being a Pinot and Chard producer, and we want more acidity. Um, and I think, knock on wood, we've gotten our arms that they're starting to, you know, tackle these fires and better and more preventive ways. You know, clearly uh, we're organic, our two, our vineyard sites, we live um, right at our Gloria Vineyard here. So, you know, we're drinking the water. We want to be as as healthy. I've been on the board of the Sonoma Land Trust for a long time. We donated some old growth redwoods. So yeah, we're trying to be as sustainable as possible. You know, it's just a challenge with global supply chain, obviously with inflation and getting products. We're trying to source as much from the U.S. as much as we can locally. This is like a, a little personal thing that I've been randomly keeping track of lately. 
Do you guys take into account how much your bottles weigh? And have you gone to like a lighter bottle just to try to be more sustainable and knowing how far you ship some of your wines, if a lot of them are going to like Japan or? Yeah, it's something we look at. And, you know, right from the get go, we didn't, we went for a lighter bottle. You know, some of these folks have really heavy, heavy bottles, but you know, packaging, you know, a lot of it's a waste and, you know, we're trying to figure out how to get rid of these foil tops. That's like the, you know, the clearest one to say, you know, what, what's the, the footprint to go create these, these foil tops and what's the purpose of it? So yeah, we're constantly thinking about how we can kind of streamline. You know, it's also a you know, big cost for us. So yeah, we're on the same page. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know Glass, I'm a big, I'm a big wax guy, big wax guy. So I think that oh, uh, replacing your foil with wax would be good. Yeah, and that's got you know different because just because you got to hand dip all these things. That's and, true. Uh, yeah. But no, absolutely, I think we're trending in that direction. But appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Uh, out, outside of West. Sonoma Coast, where's the best place to drink Pinot Noir on the West Coast? Because I'm on the East Coast and it's really difficult. Yeah, I, you know, mentioned, you know, the Green Valley, the Russian River. You're talking about regions that are growing? Yeah, yeah, maybe emerging, trending. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think, that... you know, Mendocino is really interesting. You know, great terroir up there, really interesting wineries. You know, Oregon, you mentioned earlier. So, but yeah, we got a lot of small producers you haven't heard of out here in West Snow Coast and Russian River. And we just happen to love the fruit profile and the soil and the combination that, you know, just creates very distinctive wines. But hopefully you guys, well, Billy, come out this weekend and Brady, open invite, come out and see us. Yeah, sounds so when good. Billy, when Billy invites me, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to come stay with him and we can go up. <laughs> well, yeah, then we'll have to go all the way from Los Angeles up there, but uh, we'll work it out. Well, thank you so much, Ken, for coming on. And we, we really appreciate the time. Hey, thank you and the Vint team. Congrats on all your success to date and look forward to seeing you guys soon. All right. That was our interview with Ken Freeman. And that is our podcast episode for the week of October 24th. As always, go ahead and check out our open collections. And if you have any questions on any of the wines or any of the collections as a whole, please reach out to us. You can reach out either at supportadvent.co or wineadvent.co. And also feel free to, you know, reach out if you have any questions on what wine you should be drinking this weekend, or if you have any questions on trying to decide between a couple of wines, we are here to answer and uh, to be there for you. So we, until next week, uh, that is the Vint Podcast. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.